Well, remember, it was a few months ago, not too, too long ago, we were talking about the security breach, the hack that took place at TransLink. It caused a lot of problems for TransLink. They are still dealing with the aftermath of that cyber attack. And there have been more. Toronto Hospital has become one of the most recent victims of a cyber attack. News out of the United States that Carnival Cruise Lines had a data breach. Hackers were able to get into the system. So why are we seeing what appears to be an increase in these types of attacks and how do we protect ourselves, especially if we're worried about our personal information? Well, Alex Dow joins me now, Chief Technology Officer and Cyber Security Professional with Murai Security. Alex, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Are we seeing more of these attacks or are we just paying more attention to them now when they do happen? Um, I would say both. Um, We are seeing an increase in cyber attacks, but it's also becoming more mainstream uh, on the news. Um, But, you know, there's money to attacking companies and individuals and uh, cyber criminals are going after that money. Are they changing how they do it and thinking we did end up getting a bit of information on the TransLink attack? We know that it came in via fax machines, just started going crazy or printers started printing off these ransom notes demanding that they pay a ransom or their private information. It wouldn't be unlocked. We know that the IT systems now at Humber River Hospital in Toronto, they have been they were paralyzed by what appears to be a ransomware attack. Are, are the people doing this becoming more tech savvy? Uh, yes and no. So first, I would say um, ransomware is just the evolution of cybercrime and cybercrime software that's out there. Um, ransomware is allowed for the sort of automation of uh, committing the crime and forcing an individual or a company into paying a ransom to get their data back. Um, however, on the other hand, I don't think that necessarily the perpetrators are actually smarter. And in fact, I would actually argue they're probably dumber. Um, <laughs> The the smart people have moved away from actually committing the crime and are developing essentially crimeware as a service software offerings. So think Shopify gives you a storefront and they take 10% off of whatever you sell. Um, Cyber criminals are now building software and allowing, you know, Joe Blow with $1,000 a month to be able to launch their own cyber attacks. So uh, so finding business opportunities there to do that and take advantage and try and paralyze uh, different companies. What about the targets? Because it does seem to be a wide range. Uh, the resort municipality of Whistler also had a cyber security attack at the end of May, I think it was. Uh, and again, as mentioned, we're seeing hospitals, we're seeing cruise lines and such. Do they, are they picky at all on the types or some types of businesses more attractive than others? I think what's hitting the news is probably more what we call spray and pray. Um, they're targeting anyone and everyone. Uh, essentially, it is a marketing campaign, if, if you would, that um, they're trying to get some customer engagement, if you would. And if they can get 0.1% of a million emails they send out, that's still a 1,000 victims, and that could be uh, millions of dollars of every campaign they launch. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, do, I do really believe that it is um, – you know, you really have to look at it as a business and they're leveraging as much automation and, and sort of volumetric attacks to, uh, you know, increase their revenue. And how is it getting in? Has that changed at all? Or does it have to be, when you say they send out a million email, does it have to be one employee clicks on the link, even though we've all taken our cybersecurity training? Is it always that, that one human that clicks on something that we shouldn't? 
Uh, it, it isn't the only way, but it is the more common way and the easier way us humans are, you know, the, the weakest link in the cybersecurity chain um, in organizations. And that's why a lot of organizations are increasing security awareness training uh, to help reduce that risk. But it, the reality is, is it's never going to be down to zero. All of us will one day click on an email that we really shouldn't. Um, and that's where companies have the ability to like layer in security so that even if a user does click on something um, malicious, that there may be another uh, gate that um, stops the threat from uh, perpetrating across the environment. And when we look at this as well, when they do get in, is there what happens then as far as do companies, do they quietly sometimes pay the ransom or how do you recover from this? That's a great question. So, you know, the metrics of how many cyber attacks are happening um, is increasing, and that's because it is becoming more um, uh, more standard to be reporting these things. Plus, there's now laws that are forcing companies to. But uh, you know, back in the day, companies really swept it under the rug. It was bad for uh, the brand, um, and they were able to. Um, but now, again, with with privacy laws mandating uh, these disclosures and the cyber criminals actually threatening to publicize the breach if they don't pay, uh, I think that's really increasing. Um, the visibility to the general public. How concerned should the general public be when we hear from these places that get hacked? And again, an example would be Whistler. They came out and said, yes, they did access some of the personal information of employees, but they didn't get personal information of residents, of others. Same with TransLink saying, yes, there may have been some employee information, but don't worry if you have an online account or you've somewhere on TransLink's site, put in your credit card number, your personal information, that's third party. They didn't get access to the general public's information. How confident should we be when we're told that, that our personal information is being protected? Uh, low confidence. Hmm. Um, the, the reality is, is that it's not if you'll be impacted by a cyber breach in your lifetime, but when and how many times. Um, I shared a link with your producer uh, and recommend everyone um, log in to uh, haveibeenpwned.com. Um, it's a website that tracks all data breaches that have been uh, made public and uh, tracks your email address. So if you put your email address in, it'll tell you every, every uh, service and website that has been breached and if you were affected by it. Um, the reality is it's not an if you will be affected, but when, unfortunately. So the most uh, people, though, that might uh, be so afraid of clicking on anything, when you hear about a website like that, it almost goes so far the other way in that I don't want to click on that website. What if that's a trap? Well, you, you know, uh, fair enough. Um, it is a, a security researcher running it. He's had a lot of publicity over the years because of what he's doing. Uh, but there is that risk. Now, you are sharing your email address, and arguably, you probably already shared it with one too many times already. Um, but the reality is, is that if, if you're using the Internet, you're likely using services that are not secure and will eventually have a breach. And depending on how insecure they are, will equate to how impacted you are um, as an individual. What else can people do then to hopefully avoid getting to that point where you're not trying to find out if you've been compromised, but how many times you've been compromised? How else or what is the best way for people to protect their information? Arguably, and you know, I'm a, I'm a geek at heart, <laughs> but I also practice Ludditism is maybe don't sign up for every website that is asked upon you, either by your friends or work. 
Um, and when you do have to sign up for a website for whatever reason, if you're purchasing something or uh, joining a, a new app, is really reduce the information you're sharing uh, to those applications. Um, and that, again, uh, is not eliminating your risk of being impacted by a cyber attack, but rather uh, reducing the blast radius that's going to impact you. Does it matter if you're using different email accounts? Say if you're using the same credit card information, does it matter if you're making new accounts so you're not constantly using the same account or maybe the same password? Um, those are all great suggestions. And I, uh, on our website, I have a blog about um, what we call operational security for the people. And it is some tactics that um, general public can use. And um, having individual email addresses for every website um, is a very good tactic to, again, limit the blast radius. But it is arguably a little bit advanced for most people. Um, but using a password tool and then not having the same password is uh, definitely good. And then, of course, using multi-factor authentication, which most uh, uh, websites will now offer. And that uh, essentially forces you to authenticate both through password as well as through your phone, uh, through text message or, or, or an app. I wondered about that because it does seem like more places are doing that. So does that really help? Or is there also the chance, I guess, when we think we get this text message with the verification code, do we then let our guard down a bit? Or does that give us a good layer of protection? Um, the, the text message authentication is arguably the weakest model of that, but it is still better than not having it. Um, and, you know, obviously, coming from my perspective of dealing with lots of incidents over the years, um, you don't have to be super secure. You just need to be faster than the slowest person when the bear's chasing. And, and that is a very dire outlook, but the attacks are going to continue on. Attackers are, are going to be going for the lowest uh, hanging fruit and the easiest targets. And you just want to reduce uh, how much of a target you are. All right. Good advice uh, given, uh, good advice any day, but especially given what looks like an increase in these attacks. Alex, thanks so much for coming on the program. Appreciate that. My pleasure. Thank you. Alex Mirai is cyber, or sorry, Alex Doe, it's Mirai's security. Uh, Alex Doe is a chief technology officer and a cybersecurity professional. And again, that's M-I-R-A-I, Mirai Security. If you want to go to the website and check out, as Alex said, he's put that tool there or written the blog post there about making your information as secure as you can, protecting yourself against these cyber attacks as best you can. Again, Mirai Security. Right now, though, let's take a look at one of the big stories happening today. We're still seeing cases uh, across the country, and we want to get them down. At the same time, uh, we also know we have to hit our targets of 75% uh, vaccinated with a first dose, uh, at least 20% vaccinated at the second dose uh, before we can start loosening things up. Because even a fully vaccinated individual uh, can pass on uh, COVID-19 to someone who is not vaccinated. Uh, and that means we have to really make sure that not only uh, people who are fully vaccinated can travel, but that the communities uh, to which they will return are not at risk that was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking earlier today, talking about the extension of the border closure to all but non-essential traffic. That extension announced it will be going until at least July 21st. So we wanted to check in with Brian Calder, who is the president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. Brian, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Hi, Brian. Hi. Hi. I'm good. How are you? Hi. Good, good. Other than uh, the announcement by the Prime Minister and the Premier, 
um, we're surviving here. But if we lose another summer, we're going to lose Point Roberts economically. Uh, yeah, I know the news today wasn't what you wanted to hear and certainly wasn't what you and some others on that side of the border had been hearing from people very close to the U.S. Border Service. Uh, did you get any other information or have you been hearing anything else there about the fact that, yes, uh, the border, is, the closure is going to be extended, but um, maybe about the easing or do we know anything more about that? Well, we, I, I go back to what we've talked with you before about two months ago, one month ago, and, and now today. Our fire chief, Carlton, has vaccinated over 85% of us down here in Point Roberts. And uh, we've had two cases in 15 months that immediately got contained and did not spread. So we've got a terrific record. We're nowhere better placed than to do a pilot project to phase in because we're no threat to anybody. And he's offered to vaccinate Canadians. He said, I can do a thousand, send them down on a weekend and we'll vaccinate them. And he's got the Johnson and Johnson uh, single shot. And the premier of the province says, no, what on earth are they thinking? I mean, it's about saving lives. It's about vaccinating. It's about humanity. It isn't about a military mindset. Lock the border, lock them up, even though we haven't done anything. We've got the best record in North America. It's bizarre. It's got to also be frustrating for you in that looking at this and hearing the words of the prime minister, and and I get it kind of takes the wind out of people's sails in that we've been going for the most part, getting vaccinated as we can. There have been supply issues. That's why it's been delayed. People are starting to get their second shots. And in the two weeks out from that fully vaccinated, like you said, everybody in Point Roberts has been vaccinated. So you'd like to think when you've got that community, no one's coming in and out of Point Roberts really right now. The entire community has been vaccinated that you couldn't be tested. And if you had a negative test, be free to travel because you're not going to be passing on. If you're one of the very few that might still be able to pass on the virus, you're not going to be passing it on if you can prove you're not bringing it with you. Exactly. And, and it's not a failure of the public. The public has been behind safety, vaccination in spades. It's a failure of the political so-called leaders. The big missing uh, formula there is leadership. And it's patently obvious they paid very, very little attention other than to say one size fits all, lock them down, and are abusing the people that elected them, in my opinion. And it's, it's shameful. Has there been any increased access for residents of Point Roberts to get to other parts of Washington State? As far as I know, there was a ferry service set up uh, only a couple days a week. But has, has it become any easier for Point Roberts residents to go south? Yeah, I am south right now to a doctor's appointment because I wasn't allowed to go to my doctor in Ladner, five miles away. I've got to go to a new one i got to find here 50 miles away. But I must say that this trip, the Canadian uh, and U.S. borders were courteous and they weren't abusive at all. Um, they, were, they were listened to you. They looked at, said, okay, here are the rules. Where you go. Have a nice day. So it, there's a 
to, to me, I mean, you don't base a you know, decision on one encounter, but it was with two officers so far, one U.S., one Canada. And there, there seems to be a more mellowed out attitude. They're allowing people to go for banking because our bank closed and put one of our banks closed in Point Roberts and some don't do electronics. So they go to Blaine Bellingham to their banner bank and they're allowing that now, whereas before a few months back, they would not. But it's far from uh, open. Let's put it that way. Far from open. Uh, you mentioned that Point Roberts won't survive being cut off for another summer. You just said one of the banks has closed. What is still open there? Uh, the marketplace, thankfully, is open. Um, the Saltwater Cafe just closed again two weeks ago because couldn't couldn't uh, tried and couldn't sustain it. Uh, so closed until we get the Canadians back. Uh, Parcel Post. Some of them have gone from, for example, nine employees to two or one. Uh, the Shell Mart has a parcel post and food, uh, like uh, convenience store type food, uh, and gas, of course. And it went from 13. They'd normally have 13 right now. We'd be busy in Point Roberts. We'd have about 3,000 people. We've got about 800, 900, and the Shell Mart 13 is now two, two people instead of 13. And so if we get a double whammy of, of missing two uh, summer, spring, summer, fall uh, Canadian injection, if you will, um, we're going to see half our, in my opinion, in my fear is we're going to lose half our businesses. On Monday, we're expecting to hear some more information on fully vaccinated people and traveling back and forth on the border. Do you have any confidence that that might open things up or we might see the relaxation of the rules for for that group of people? And that would include Point Roberts? Well, at a minimum, to me, they should do Point, not just because I live here, but it's the safest uh, and easiest one to control along the whole 5,500 mile undefended previously uh, undefended border um, because you drive into Point Roberts as you know uh, we got gotcha. you you got to go back out that portal uh, or you don't leave that's the only way in and out by a vehicle so uh, at a minimum we should see them allowing Canadians because uh, half of us here are dual in Point Roberts uh, back into Canada if they've been fully vaccinated and maybe a month after their second shot. Um, I've, I've got two and a half months under my belt after my second shot. And why can't I go to my dentist or my veterinarian in, in Ladner and go straight back home showing my double vax certificate? I'll still wear a mask and gloves if they want. And I should be able to do that. Not just me. All of us should be able to do that. And it makes sense. It's safe. They're no threat to anybody, and they're not paying a damn bit of attention to us, and that's infuriating. It's got to also be infuriating, and we talked to Len, the immigration lawyer, about this as well, that all of this time and every time we talk to you about this and the isolation of Point Roberts, not too, too far away at Zero Avenue, people are continuing to meet up, to spend days together, to spend hours together, uh, not days on end, but then leave at the end of the day. And we're talking about people here that also probably, it's unlikely everybody in that scenario is double vaccinated and as we heard from the prime minister doesn't matter because as far as they concern you can still pass it on but that's happening at the same time yeah exactly and the trouble is that lens a sensible person and so no one's listening to him politically 
uh, rest of us are listening to him big time because he knows what he's talking about. And, and he's got great ideas. He's a safe, sane person, as I would you know, say Point Roberts people are as well. And we're just getting no traction. And it makes sense. I mean, even come out and debate with Come and argue with me. You know, well, and then, then they'll say, oh, well, someone might falsify a COVID test card. Well, and so we got to put in a system that we're going to make sure no one can have a false card. Well, what kind of a moron would want to for, for that kind of a card you know, falsify their, their vaccination anyhow? What, I mean, you got to be a moron to do that. Number two, how have you done so well with prescriptions? They, they forged passports for 100 years, for God's sakes, and still do to this day. And they can't catch them all, you know, all the time, at least. If, if, if you can do that, forge prescriptions, you know, illegal prescription issuing. You know, what luck do you think you're going to have with, with trying to register their COVID shot? I mean, if, if someone's determined to be a forger about let them go ahead and let them get the virus and and suffer the consequences. I mean, it's going to be minuscule. It's a specious argument. All right, Brian, we'll leave it there. But thanks again, as always, for coming on. Hopefully, when we talk to you again, it will be with brighter news. But thanks so much for your time. And we can invite you down (laughs) and enjoy Point Roberts. Canada's chief public health officer says the change is based on several studies which show there's a better immune response with a mixture of AstraZeneca and either Pfizer or Moderna. So what does that mean for someone who's already had two doses of AstraZeneca? You totally made the right choice. You got a great vaccine. Some reassurance from infectious diseases specialist Dr. Suman Chakrabarty. And now it's just that uh, we're in a different situation where you know we have an abundance of vaccine. All right, that news coming out yesterday after NACI recommended people who got a first dose of AstraZeneca, your second dose, the preferred dose, according to NACI, is one of the mRNAs. We also heard later in the day from Dr. Bonnie Henry, who said that is not changing BC's strategy on this, saying it is still up to people which vaccine they want for their second dose if you got AstraZeneca. You can choose AstraZeneca or choose an mRNA. But as you can imagine, this did cause for a lot of confusion and a lot of people saying, why do the rules keep changing? And we get it. The information is changing, but it can be cause a bit of anxiety. So let's bring back on Dr. Horacio Bach, an adjunct professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at UBC. Thank you so much for coming back on the program. Hello, Jean. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. What's your response to this and how things kind of keep changing a little bit? And NACI now saying, yes, if you did get AstraZeneca for the first dose, the preferred second dose is an mRNA. Yeah. So first of all, I agree with you that it's a confusion. And the, um, I'm, I'm not sure why they make this decision, because um, assuming that you get the first dose of AstraZeneca and you didn't have this uh, rare blood clotting, the possibility or the probability to get the same event after the second dose is one in 600,000. It means that it's extremely rare. So I don't understand why they mentioned that because, as you know, you say it's, it's confused people. They say, oh, maybe they did that because it's not a good vaccine. Maybe they did it that because um, uh, I, I don't know why they prefer the, the Pfizer vaccine. These studies that they mentioned about the uh, better, um, let's say, uh, uh, protection, it's just the beginning. And if, if, you, if you read basically what they mentioned is potential 
okay? It's not even uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. And I, I was very surprised because, um, uh, you know, you should continue with the second dose if you didn't have any problem with the first dose. And uh, just to, 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 to bring your attention on the audience as well, so the Pfizer vaccine also has some uh, issues that were detected in Israel and published beginning of June based on 5 million people. So they found that approximately 1 in 20,000 people will have an event that is called myocarditis that in general is very, uh, uh, very mild, so you don't feel that, or if it starts to be a little severe, so you can seek medical uh, um, help and that will resolve. So it's not that the Pfizer is completely clean as well. So, um, you know, the, the effectiveness of two doses AstraZeneca from recent studies done in UK is 85 to 90 percent. So it's very close to Pfizer. So, uh, again, I was a little surprised, and I agree with Dr. Bonieri that it's the right decision. If you did get the first one, continue with the second, because there's no issues. And if there is an issue, it's one in 600,000. So it's very, very rare. I think that's where there's some confusion as well. And I still have people emailing me and asking, oh, but don't you get better coverage if you get an mRNA, even if it's a mix of AstraZeneca and mRNA? There seems to be the thought process that your coverage and how your resistance then to COVID-19 is higher than if you got two doses of AstraZeneca. So uh, what I want to mention to the audience the protein from the virus that you use to vaccinate ourselves is the same. There's little changes to keep the um, um, stability of the protein of the virus, but it's the same. The only thing that is changing is the delivery system. So basically, in the end, I, I don't believe that will be a huge difference in the protection. Uh, it, it can be, a, 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 you know, one, two, three, five percent that was not uh, analyzed and was not published and was not tested, or maybe it's in process to be tested. But the coverage from study done with two doses of AstraZeneca is 85 to 90 percent. Again, the Pfizer uh, and um, 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 AstraZeneca, if you mix and match, definitely, uh, um, I don't think that we'll get a huge difference compared. Some people I know that, uh, you know, that we know from uh, basic science, not everyone will produce the same amount or quantity, uh, sorry, or quality of antibodies. Some people will produce a good antibody. Some people, they don't. So that we are built like that. Sometimes the vaccine is not working as we expect, excluding basically cases of underlying diseases that can affect uh, more. But I don't think that this is a, a, a better um, um, let's say, procedure to do the mix and matching. I mean, you can do that. There is no problem, but it's not based on you will get a much better protection. What about the issue? And I think some people may have seen the story that in the United States, some shows are coming back to Broadway. They are for fully vaccinated people, but because the FDA never approved AstraZeneca, that's not on the list of vaccine that is going to be accepted to allow people back. And I think people will see that and go, well, wait a minute. If having two shots of AstraZeneca means I still maybe can't travel to the United States or I'm going to have other restrictions, then maybe it is a better idea to mix and match and at least have some of the mRNA if that's what's being recognized elsewhere. Well, well, that's something else. Yeah. So, yeah, it's right. I know that in some countries they don't accept and depends on the vaccine or it's in process to be approved. 
And, you know, the same case is the, the AstraZeneca is very similar to the Johnson & Johnson, but Johnson & Johnson is approved in U.S., so you need only one dose. So that is more for traveling. Um, I don't know if you want to go to U.S. and you say, oh, I have only one Pfizer. We say, oh, sorry, you need to get two. So that's another issue that I don't know if it's contemplated, but you are right. If you want to travel to countries that the AstraZeneca is not accepted, that is valid as well. The Prime Minister earlier today talked about the reasoning why the border is going to remain closed for at least another month, saying that even fully vaccinated people can shed the virus, can spread the virus. And that has a lot of people throwing up their arms and saying, well, what is the point then if I can still pass this virus along when I've been doubly vaccinated, when I've been fully vaccinated, then what is the point? What is the likelihood or do we know how likely it is that somebody who's had both shots is more than two weeks after the second shot. Can that person still infect others? Well, it's, it's, it's something that is, is, is not a, yet, you know, a, a, a consensus. Um, what they want to bring another factor here is the variant, because today, um, you know, in UK, most of the infections are produced by the Delta variant and Definitely, we are going there. That all the world will be like that. So it's not something only for UK, because you know the virus are fighting as well. Who is the the, the better for infection? So they will grab that. And even if you have two doses of a vaccine, even after the two weeks or three weeks, that is the time that you expect to have to uh, the, the your better protection, you can still get the disease with the new variant, the Delta variant. So it's not like a, it's not transmissible, but and but still, it's much better to have that compared to non-unvaccinated. Because if you don't get the vaccine, you are exposed to this variant that is very, very aggressive compared to the other variants. And definitely having the vaccine, so you reduce your probability to go to the hospital for, you know, a critical care. Um, yeah, definitely, uh, I, I think it's a matter just to avoid transmission. Um, we don't know exactly, but having that the the mask, that I'm, I'm a little surprised that they will you know, at some point they will stop to use the mask. That is the barrier that you can use to avoid that if you have double vaccinated, you don't transmit the virus because in general, you know, is when you talk will come, uh, you know, the virus in vesicles or if you sneeze. That the, the masks are probably a, a, a very good uh, um, defense for the transmission. Uh, definitely, we don't know all this stuff. You know, it's very hard to do this type of a, a studies because you need to catch the person that is with the virus after the vaccine and test. So it's not easy to recruit people to do that. Right. So, so just to, to clarify, though, when you're talking about the Delta variant, like you say, when you're fully vaccinated, you're still two or three weeks after your second shot. There is still a chance you could get the Delta variant. But is it are we showing that people that are fully vaccinated, even if you get the Delta variant, are you pretty well sure that it's not going to be extreme? Well, that's what the what what is in the you know in the reports that the, you you can get the infection, but it's not going to be severe. So you are still protected against that. But again, you know, it's matter of uh, you know it's very individual some people may have a the immune system not working very well or for some reason they don't produce antibodies very well and that can be you know part of that but definitely uh people need to monitor all the time what is their health uh, at a daily basis to feel if i feel something wrong so i have to go and be tested no matter what so so when do we get to a point then where being vaccinated 
getting doing what we've been told, getting both the shots gets us back to being able to travel, being able to move around more free or because it sounds like there could always be the argument made that there is going to be someone vulnerable. There's going to be the possibility that even though you aren't going to have an extreme case of COVID-19, you might shed, you might pass it on to somebody. When do we move away from that point? Well, I think that we are in, here in BC, we are in the very close to the herd immunity. What we expect that is between 70 to 80% of the population is uh, double vaccinated with specific time after the second time of the second dose of the vaccine. So, um, you know, at some point, I think needs to be released, uh, the restriction of using masks needs to be released uh, slowly and also make a, a assessment what's happening after, let's say, two weeks, because that is time that we expect. If you get more or less, it's going up the, the, the infection, the number of infections per day. So it's just, you know, trial and error. You release and you see. You know what's happening in the in, in UK, so they were sure that they're going to opening, no mask, and they have a spike of this uh, variant to 7,700 cases only last Monday. So they decide, no way, we continue with the lockdown for another month, uh, four weeks, basically. So, you know, it's something that we, you need to assess on the spot. You, you cannot predict the behavior of this virus. All right, Dr. Bach, we'll leave it there. Thanks again, as always, for coming on the program to talk about this. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Well, back by popular demand, the People's Law School is going to be putting on another webinar. Generally, we wouldn't take a lot of time to talk about webinars on this program, but this one has to do with questions like, I'm just taking down one small wall in my house. Do I really need a permit for that? Spoiler alert, the answer in most cases is yes. This is all about making sure people are aware about what they can do when it comes to renovations, when it comes to building things outside of your home, be it a deck or a little shed in your backyard. And there was the first installment of this, and there were a lot of people who signed up with a lot of questions. So they are bringing back another one on Tuesday, June 22nd at noon Pacific time, noon our time, where people will be able to ask questions about your legal rights when it comes to home renovations. So we thought, let's get a preview and find out what kind of questions people asked the first time around and what it's going to look like come June 22nd. So joining me now to talk more about this is municipal lawyer, Natalie Baker. She is with Iford Partners. And Natalie joins me to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is something that is going to be answering questions, so many questions that people have, probably things that they haven't really thought about before, talking about renovations, home building, taking down a wall, all of these things. What are you doing as far as addressing those questions and trying to get that information out to people? Well, I mean, usually people uh, come to me because they've found themselves in a situation where they've uh, done some work, not sometimes knowing that they needed a permit, but doing it anyway, and sometimes not realizing that a permit was required for some some minor work around the house, and then they find themselves uh, uh, caught by the uh, the rules about getting permits, and and the city city coming to them and telling them they're going to have to bring it into compliance. Uh, So you held one webinar on this, and now there's a sequel coming up on Tuesday, June 22nd. I'm imagining that's because there were so many questions or so much demand for people looking for this information. 
Well, it is, a, it is something that comes up um, a lot. I mean, people uh, have their homes. They think that uh, they can do little things around the house, change their decks, build a, or build a deck uh, without any problems. But um, and, and it, go, it, it, it changes the rules change from municipality to municipality. But but generally, uh, certainly in Vancouver, almost all construction uh, does require a permit. One of the slides uh, more, uh, telling people about the webinar and about it, uh, how it is coming up uh, on the 22nd, uh, says, I'm just taking down one wall. Do I really need to get a permit from my municipality? Is there one blanket answer for that? Uh, no. Um, certainly in, in Vancouver, if you're doing a, a structural change, moving walls around, you, you would need a permit. Uh, some municipalities might have different exemptions of based on, say, the value of the work, or uh, if you're doing a small uh, shed, for example, if it's under a certain square footage, you might have an exemption. So you really do need to check the rules uh, depending on where you live, because it, it can vary from uh, from city to city. Were those the kind of things that people were asking in the first webinar, or were there other issues, or did you see a trend as far as where people maybe were confused and didn't know what the rules were? Um. I think that that does come up a lot. Again, I think people are surprised that they can't do what they want with their with their homes, um, and uh, so I, I think it's just something that comes up really frequently. And and they what ends up happening uh, at the at the heart of all of this is generally uh, well, you didn't get a permit, but also it's because you have a neighbor that has complained. And so that's what generally triggers uh, the problem with the municipality. Uh, you see there's a neighbor that has noticed uh, somebody doing some work on their house, their deck, uh, and then uh, they complain to the city and the city inspects, and, that, and that's where the trouble begins. And it, it really does happen uh, very frequently. Right. So it's more neighbors noticing things and calling the city. It's, it's not, neighbors, yeah. Right. It's not that we have sitting inspectors roaming the streets and looking for things that might be out of compliance. Oh, that's right. It's, it is generally a complaint-driven process. Um, so, I mean, unless it's like a really obvious uh, major work, you don't, uh, you don't generally have inspectors just circling around the city looking for it. Uh, it is. It is a. Uh, it's. It's a problem. It's. It's caused by neighbors uh, noticing work being done. When you're talking about inside your home, though, if somebody goes ahead and maybe they even have some background in this and they know the difference between a load-bearing wall and a non-load-bearing wall, and they go ahead and do the work, and it's something obviously that neighbors aren't going to see. What are the concerns if you go ahead and do something like that, taking down a wall or changing something without getting a city permit? Well, it's always safety. Um, it really comes down to making sure that what's being uh, constructed is safe. And I mean, when in doubt, it's always best to just, uh, you start with looking at the city's website. Um, they generally have really good information about what you need a permit for and, and looking at their building bylaws. And then also just uh, when in doubt, call, calling um, the building department because they can also answer questions about, is this something I need a permit for or not? Right. Are there, do you still, I mean, you know all of this stuff and are there to answer questions. Are there ever um, policies or bylaws or things that even kind of stump you? Uh, sometimes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you know, sometimes it's it's all up to interpretation and, and that happens a lot. Uh, uh, you get into, that's why you end up in court sometimes is because, um, uh, either there's uh, a bylaw might be subject to different interpretations and so sometimes it has to get resolved by a judge.
And when you talk about things, these are the things outdoors, like you said, building a deck, maybe extending a deck, a small shed, neighbors complain. As as the homeowner, in cases like that, are you forced to, or can you fight to keep it? Or in cases like that, are homeowners generally told you have to take that down? Uh, well, it really depends. I mean, if, uh, if, if what you've built complies with the zoning and the bylaws, I mean, what, what might happen is there's going to be an inspection. If you've, if you've done some work in the walls, they might make you open it to, to check that, to make sure everything is compliant and then it, it's approvable. But if what you've done, for example, if you've built a deck that's much larger than what's allowed, um, it's likely going to come down unless you can get, uh, there, there are means of trying to legalize them by, you can go to the board of variants. Uh, so say you've built it a little too deep into the setback, uh, then you, you can try to get a variance from the bylaw so that it can at least be approvable. But I mean, if it's not, um, if it doesn't comply with the rules, then, then it's coming down. Yeah. And, and would, you, you would have to build something that complies. Right. And then try to not only figure out how you build something that complies, uh, my guess is there have been a lot of relationships between neighbors that have soured in these uh, in these types of things. It is. If there's uh, one good rule to follow, it's to to get along with your neighbors uh, and then also and get your permits, obviously. But, um, yeah, that that does drive most of these um, most of when the city goes after somebody over this, it's because the neighbors generally complained. And I think a lot of people know that you're supposed to get the permit, but maybe you don't want to wait or you think it's just going to be easier to go ahead and do it. How how much is the delay in permitting factoring into this, do you think? Well, I think that's a, a big, at least in Vancouver, that's probably a, a big part of why people just go ahead and, and make that decision to, to do the do the work. Uh, the delays are really significant at the city right now. Uh, and so I think people just figure, well, I'm just going to to do this uh, uh, quickly. My contractor says not to worry. I'm just going to quickly do this. Uh, I mean, the so you're gonna you'll have to make a, a decision there. I mean, I always recommend getting your permits. There's uh, the, again the the potential um, penalty. It can be really severe. You can get charged with a bylaw offense. You have to tear it down. Um, and so uh, always better to get your permit. But yeah, you you want to plan for for potential uh, potential delays. How long of a delay? And again, talking about Vancouver, where I know a lot of your expertise is, say if someone's getting a permit uh, for the things we've been talking about, for a deck to take a, a wall down, make that structural change, what would be uh, a delay that somebody might be facing? Um, I, I'm not sure. I know some people have been dealing with months delay, years delay, depending on the, on the size of the project. So really uh, significant delays happening uh, at the city of Vancouver. And I think that's probably one of the reasons people do just decide to to go ahead if they want to do a small deck repair or change their deck. Uh, I think that's part of the reason they're they're going ahead and ma- making the decision to move forward without without getting their permits. But again, I, I, w- I wouldn't recommend that. Right, because I'm guessing if you do find yourself down the line defending it or trying to explain yourself, saying I the wait was too long, even though that's true, <laughs> saying that the wait was yeah. too long isn't a valid argument. That's right. You need your permit, you need your permit. And the fact that uh, the city is dragging its feet on these isn't, uh, isn't going to help you. Is there anything people should avoid? I mean, is this really for uh, the private homeowner as far as uh, like what we've been talking about, smaller outbuildings, decks, walls and things? So, or, is, or is it anything, any question you have that, that you're welcome to come and take part? 
it's mostly about this topic of what is and isn't allowed when you're doing work around your house. Uh, and so looking at things like, okay, do I need a permit to change my cupboards, to change my flooring? No, you don't. Those kind of things you're not going to need a permit for. Uh, but finding out, okay, where is that line between, okay, this is something I need to, uh, I need to get a permit for. If I don't, there are potentially very serious consequences. I think that's the thing people don't realize how, how serious the consequences can actually be of, of doing work without the permits. Uh, so it's going to be covering those types of topics. All right. Very uh, important information to get out there. Natalie, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us to give us a bit of a preview on this and to talk uh, renovations and making sure people don't make those mistakes. Oh, thank you very much and thanks for having me.